The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, we are uh, continuing our, our series in Isaiah today, as you saw. And if, if you've been tracking with us, we're, we're kind of hopping around this book. We, uh, the first week, we were in Isaiah 6, which is the call of Isaiah. And then uh, the week, I was actually gone a couple weeks ago, and, and we, we had to skip over. But that was supposed to be Isaiah chapter 2. And if you're like, oh, man, I was just really dying to get into Isaiah chapter 2, fear not. Uh, the small group guide, there's a small group guide that goes with Isaiah chapter 2, so you'll cover it in your small group. And you say, but Gabe, I'm not in a small group. Ho, ho. Sign up for one today, all right? Then you can go through it. You won't miss out. Um, and then last week, we jumped ahead to Isaiah 25, and we looked at what our, our hope for the future is as Christians. But today, we hop back a few chapters, and we go to Isaiah 11. And, uh, and I have to uh, forewarn you uh, about this chapter. Uh, when I was in seminary, I wrote a 30-page paper on this chapter of Isaiah, okay? So... Uh, just, I reread it for this, so just get ready for, for a sermon that's really focused on Hebrew verb conjugations and textual variants and my interaction with late 19th century historical critical scholars. All right, you guys ready? Good? All right, I got a B plus on it, so hopefully the sermon will shake down that way. Uh, but since I don't think any of you are masochists, I'll, I'll try to be a little bit more interesting than that. Um, because chapter 11 of Isaiah is very interesting. Um, you, you may recognize it if, if you grew up in the church. If, if not, that's fine. Uh, but, but if you did, this is often a text that's read during Advent, the season leading up to Christmas, or it's read around Christmas time. And that's because this text is about the coming Messiah. And it's not just about the Messiah in general, but it's about the Messiah as king. It's about the coming Messiah king. And so what we see in our text today is three things. We see who the king is, see what the king does, and we see the results of his reign. Who the king is, what he does, and the result of his reign. And so let's get going. We're just going to start right off the bat, verse 1. We're hitting every verse today, so get excited. Uh, it says this, uh, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so Isaiah, we see in this text, if, if you read it in your Bible, you see that it's, it's kind of aligned differently because this text is poetry. It's called prophetic poetry. And, and so what it means is that what Isaiah is speaking is true, it's reality, that's the prophetic part. But he uses the, the literary tools of poetry, and so there's a lot of allegory and metaphor. And so as we read it, there's always a, a deeper meaning to what he's saying. And so he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So there's a deep meaning here. So who's Jesse? Well, Jesse is the, the father of, of King David, and King David is the, the greatest king in the history of Israel. He's the best king they had, and then, and then he kind of sets up the line of kings. And then Solomon's after him, and, and Solomon was pretty good. He had a few issues, but, but he was all right. And then after that, uh, it's just a mess. The kings are just evil and wicked, and there's a few good guys here and there. But, but for the most part, these guys are just a mess. And so Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel at this time who are living in this mess of kings. He's writing to these people who have experienced these guys who are in the line of Jesse, and they're useless. They're a stump. That's what he's saying. They're, they're dead. They're no good. Useless. But Isaiah gives this picture of hope, and he says, from that dead stump, new life is going to come. From that dead stump, a, a king is going to arise, and this king is going to bear fruit. This king is going to be the type that brings life out of death. And so for, for us as Christians, we've always seen this text as pointing to Jesus that he is that Messiah King, that he's the one who came and brought life out of death. And what's amazing to me about this is that Isaiah wrote this text, give or take, 700 years before Jesus was even born. 
And what we're going to see throughout this text today is that 700 years before he was even born, Isaiah depicts almost perfectly who Jesus was and what he did on this earth. And it's pretty amazing, the, the accounts of Jesus, the Gospels, they don't miss this. They don't miss that, that Jesus was born of the, the line of David, that he's born of the line of Jesse. The, the first Gospel, Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, the very first verse of it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Matthew, we know, is written to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so he, right off the bat, these are people that would have known Isaiah 11. They would have been looking for this king to come from the line of David. Right off the bat, Matthew says, hey, this is it. The guy is here. The, the sprout has come. The, the new life is here. The king is here. And you'd think that'd be met with like great celebration. Like, finally, it's been 700 years. We've been waiting for this dude. But if you know the story of Jesus... His kingship is not really met with celebration. It's met with, challenging, with challenges and questioning and sometimes just outright anger. And why is that? Here's why. Because just like today, everybody wants a king, but nobody wants this king. Okay? Everybody wants a king, but we want a king of our own creation. We want a king that we make. Uh, a book came out in 1949 by a guy named Joseph Campbell called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, have any of you heard of it? Phil, I knew it, I knew it. Um, <laughs> sorry, I was all excited. Um, okay. Uh, but anyways, and, and this book is, uh, it's, I, I've only read excerpts of it, if I'm honest. I haven't read the whole thing. But, but the general gist of it is what Campbell does is, is he explores different myths from various, a variety of cultures throughout time, throughout space, just, just tons of different cultures and all their different myths. And he looks at all of them, and, and he looks at, uh, ancient Eastern myths and Western mythology. He traces the pattern of the hero all the way up to the modern era. He traces the pattern of the hero. What do, they, what do people paint as this idyllic hero? And then he uses modern psychology and he shows how universally as humans we, we have this need for a hero. That across different cultures there's this cry inside each of us that we need someone who's, who's going to lead and lead well. We need someone, something outside of ourselves to explain to us how things are supposed to work, how the world's supposed to work, and, and find meaning and purpose from that hero, from that leader. What's right? What's wrong? Where to go? So he shows us we all want a king, but we all want one of our own creation. And this takes shape in a couple different ways. Um, I read an article this week titled Religion for the Non-Religious. And, uh, and it was written by this guy who's self-described as an atheist. And, and he says, uh, you know, I, I'm an atheist, but I, I find uh, religion really brings uh, wisdom to people. And he thinks that, that's a good thing. And he's like, so I've created my own religious system so that I can find uh, wisdom. And he calls himself a truthist, uh, which is a clever name, I guess. And, and he explains that, that his religion works by this. First, he acknowledges that, hey, we don't know everything. We don't know everything, which is a good place to start. Uh, and then he says, and then using reason alone, he says, I just use reason alone. I'm going to seek to learn everything that I don't know yet. And so that's his, that's his religion. And that's fine. Reason's a good thing. Uh, but, but do you see that he's got a king? He set up king as his reason. Specifically, uh, Western post-enlightenment understanding of reason. And anything that doesn't fit within his king's rule and within his king's reign, he just pushes aside. So the supernatural is not going to have any room there. It's gone. He's got his own king. We all want a king of our own creation. Here's another example. Uh, a friend of mine sent me an article a couple weeks ago titled, from the New York Times, it was titled, Why Are Americans So Fascinated with Extreme Fitness? 
Uh, and it was my friend uh, Angie sent it to me. And, and in this article, the, the author brilliantly explores the explosion of, of fitness, of, of extreme fitness in the U.S. In particular, she looks at the CrossFit movement. Uh, literally, if you drive down Crystal Falls, you'll run into like four CrossFit gyms. Um, and, uh, and that's fine. It's great. But, but she uh, compares this movement to a religion. And I just love how she closed her, her article. Let me just read it for you. She writes, But our new religion has more than a little in common with the religions that brought our ancestors to America in the first place. Like the idealists and extremists who founded this country, the modern zealots of exercise turn their backs on the indulgences of our culture, seeking solace in self-abnegation and suffering. This is the route to a better life, they tell us, gesturing at their sledgehammers and their kettleballs, their military drills and their dramatic reenactments of hard labor. It makes sense that for those few segments of humanity who aren't fighting for survival every day of their lives, the new definition of fulfillment is feeling as if you're about to die. Maybe that's the point. For the privileged, maybe the most grueling path seems the most likely to lead to divinity. And then she closes with this line that I find fascinating and heartbreaking at the same time. She says this, When I run on Sunday morning... I passed seven packed, bustling fitness boutiques and five nearly empty churches. And so what's her point in this article? Her point is that that people are trying to find truth and meaning and purpose and identity outside themselves. They're trying to find it. For some of these folks, this happens in a gym. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with working out. I'm all for it. Do it. And there's nothing wrong with using reason to understand this world. That's a good thing. Let's do it. But I'm just saying, we turn these things into kings. And we let those rule over us. And see, religious people, you may have like, liked my first two examples. Be like, yeah, get those guys. They're not like us, right? We got Jesus. We're probably the worst at this, right? If you're like me, you're probably the worst at this. We make kings of our own creation all the time. Is Jesus only king when things are going well for you? See, if that's the case, then Jesus isn't king, comfort is. And is Jesus only king when things are convenient for you? See, then Jesus isn't really king, personal freedom is. Or how about this? How much emotional investment, emotional energy did you expend on Tuesday? If your guy, if your gal, if your politician isn't in office, is Jesus still king? See, if not, then your politics are king and not Jesus. We all want a king of our own creation. But in verse 2 of our text, Isaiah tells us about a king who's better than any king we could create. If y'all would look with me at verse 2. It says this, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so I just want us to focus on that, that top line there. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We'll do that real quick. In other words, what that line says is that this king is divinely appointed. That this king is, is chosen by God to be king. But it actually points us to an even deeper truth about who God is. I don't know if you caught this, but it says, and the spirit. Okay, so the spirit. And then the Lord, which that, that would be Yahweh. So God the Father. And then it rests on him. And so what you see there is there's three persons, but one God at work. That this is a a picture, a really early picture of the Trinity. That not only is this king divinely appointed, but somehow he's divine. 
And we see the gospel writers pick up on this too. That when Jesus is baptized, you hear the voice of the Father from heaven saying, this is my Son whom I love. And you see the Spirit descend or rest on him like a dove. And so this points us to this bigger picture of who God is. And so again and again, the gospel writers are screaming that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies from 700 years earlier. But what I love is that we see not only is this king, Jesus, divine, but that he's wise, right? You see that spirit of wisdom, that he's strong of might, that he's smart knowledge, that he's morally upright. That's the fear of the Lord. I mean, he's basically everything you'd want in a king, everything you'd want in a good ruler, right? Wise, strong, smart, moral. Wouldn't it be great if we had leaders like that? That's what we want, and that's who Jesus is. It's all true of Jesus. See, every other king we construct will ultimately let us down. Every other king can maybe offer wisdom or smarts or uh, morality, but ultimately let us down. The, the only king that can actually sustain those things for us is Jesus, and the only reason he can sustain them is because he's divine. He is the source of wisdom. He is the source of strength. He is the source of morality. He is the source of all knowledge. That's our king. And so that's who the king is. But Isaiah tells us more. He tells us what this king does. Look with me at verses 3 through 5. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. And so what does this king do? Isaiah says that this king, he, he delights in the Lord. And that he doesn't judge by appearance alone. And that he has a, a right relationship towards the poor. That he cares about them. And that when he speaks truth, when this king speaks truth, those that live in a lie are brought to their knees. And that he always does what is right. And that he's always faithful. If you look at this list, man, is that not exactly who Jesus is? That he was constantly delighting in the Lord. He was always praying to his Father in heaven. If you read through the Gospels, he's doing that again and again and again. And that he didn't judge by mere appearances. But that the outcasts of society, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners, they found themselves drawn to him. So much so that, that his enemies called him the friend of sinners. And he treated the poor well. He constantly talked about giving to the poor. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. But he also had an edge to him, didn't he? Jesus had an edge. That he'd, he'd speak truth. And he'd call out the powerful. He'd call out the religious elite. He'd call out those who were living in a lie, and he'd bring them to their knees. And whenever a morally unclear question came, he had the right answer. He was righteous. And whenever people needed him, he was there. He's faithful. See, 700 years before Jesus is even born, Isaiah gives us this beautiful picture of who our divine king is. It's incredible. And so do you see how like who Jesus is and what he does is better than any king that you or I would create? Like, do you get that this description of a king, that, that who Jesus is and what he's done is what we actually really need? Is what, if we're honest with ourselves, we really long for? 
And yet, we so often resist his kingship. We so often resist his lordship in our lives. We're like my son, uh, Titus. So he's uh, going to be two in December. And uh, he's learning his uh, independence right now. And uh, if you've ever hung out with a toddler, you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and so recently, for example, uh, we, were, we were eating dinner as a family. And he wanted to watch ELMO afterwards. Elmo? Okay, we got, all right. He's not here? Okay. They just hear that as an offer. Yeah, let's do it right now. Um, and so, so he wanted to watch Elmo after dinner, and we're like, all right, that's fine. But, you know, Titus, when you finish your dinner, just tell mom and daddy you're all done. Okay, and then we'll go watch Elmo right away. So we eat, and Titus finishes eating, but he's still got a bunch of food on his plate. And instead of telling us he's all done, what does he do? Throws it all on the floor, right? And I was like, bro, like, what are you doing? You know, like, like just listen to us, do what we ask you to do, it'd be so much easier, right? We, we could be watching Elmo's world right now, seeing the shenanigans that Mr. Noodle's getting into. I mean, we're having the time of our lives. But instead, I was like, Titus, you got to pick up your spaghetti. And so he's got to spend the next 10 minutes, because that's how long it takes him, to pick up all his little bits of spaghetti. How often do we do that? Where we say to the kingship of Jesus, we say, hey, you know what, <clears throat> Jesus... Your way doesn't really make sense to me right now. Your way isn't very convenient for me right now. Your view of sexuality is is too constricting. Your view of money is, is far too generous. Your view of relationships is far too much involvement of my precious time. Your view of truth is too exclusive. Your view of forgiving enemies is too hard, Jesus. So we ignore the kingship of Jesus. I'm going to live under a king of my own creation instead. What do we end up doing when that happens? Picking up spaghetti off the floor, right? And see, I think we so often resist the kingship of Jesus because we don't have a big enough picture of what his kingship will actually bring about. But Isaiah paints this awesome picture for us, verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so we looked at verses 1 through 5. The first half of this text describes who this king is and what he does. Then these verses we just read, the second half, 6 through 9, describe what his reign brings about. What does it look like when his kingdom fully is fully established? And so what does this text tell us this kingdom looks like? The wolf lays with the lamb. The leopard with the goat, the calf and the lion are hanging out. It's picture after picture of animals that normally have a predator and prey relationship living together in harmony. And then Isaiah takes it a step further and he says, and actually, little kids are going to be able to play with snakes, really dangerous ones that, that are poisonous if you get bit. They're going to be fine. They're going to be totally fine. And so he paints this picture of creation doing okay with creation, nature in a right relationship to nature, and humanity in a right relationship to the created world. 
And then he closes with those beautiful words. I, don't, I just love them. I just want to read them again. That, that the, uh, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, and the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And so in the, the reign of King Jesus, nature relates rightly to nature. Humans relate rightly to nature. There's no pain. There's no destruction. The earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea. And so what's that a picture of? Like that's peace, right? That's this biblical idea of, of shalom, this, this wholeness is brought about that a, a day is coming when King Jesus' reign will be complete and we'll actually see this. That things will be the way they're supposed to be. The world will be at peace. But if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, Gabe, you know, that's really great. Um, animals all hanging out together and then us getting along with them is fine. Kumbaya, kumbaya, that's fine. Um, but... But seriously, if, if, if we actually want the world to be at peace, isn't the real issue people? Like, people hurt each other. People destroy each other. Like, what does King Jesus have to say about that? Well, look with me at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And so Isaiah says here, in that day, which, which means on the day when the kingdom of the messianic king, the kingdom of God, is fully present, he says all people are going to look to him. All people, all nations are going to speak to him, and it's going to be glorious. In other words, he says the messianic king is going to unite all people under him. Across all cultures, all nations will be united under this one king. I want you to just realize how incredible that is. Just think about this. Because what do all kings throughout all history do? Every single king. Everyone does this. They create borders. These are my people. Those are not. These are the people that are part of my kingdom. You're not. We draw these boundary lines. So if you're not in my people, you're either my enemy or I'm indifferent towards you. I was uh, talking with a friend this week. And he asked me some challenging questions about our church. And he said, Gabe, as, as you look at um, the community of Leander and you look at your church, um, are you representative of your community? And, uh, and I thought about it, and, uh, and, and we're really not, if we're honest. Um, that, that by and large, we're kind of college-educated, middle-class folk. And there's more than that in our community. There's a, there's a greater diversity of people and, and that's, we don't need to apologize for that. That's great. We are who we are. God sends who he sends. That's fine. But we do need to realize that that inherently creates boundaries, right? That inherently creates dividing lines. And I know none of us does that on purpose, but it just happens, right? People flock to those like them. They feel comfortable around those like them. But see, Isaiah says the Messianic King, King Jesus, he doesn't work like that. That Jesus doesn't work like that, that, that he'll be the sort of place where people of all nations, all cultures, all people are welcomed. Now, can you think of a better picture? Like, can you think of a better hope for the future than what Isaiah paints here? Like, I can't. I can't. All of creation in harmony, all of humanity living in peace under this one true king. Now, do you see that you are invited to that kingdom? Like you, like right now, you're invited into that. Jesus is calling you. He's bringing you into that. Because, see, Jesus' message throughout his ministry was repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And to repent literally means to turn around, to turn away. And so Jesus says, hey, turn away from your false kings. Turn away from the false king of comfort. Turn away from the false king of convenience. Turn away from the false king of political power. Turn away from the king of control. Repent of your false kings and enter into my kingdom. Find yourself under my lordship. Repent of your false kings and live into the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated. And of course, that, that kingdom isn't fully here yet, right? Like animals still eat each other. Uh, we still eat animals, and they're delicious, right? Um, but as we anticipate the day when Jesus' kingdom will be fully here, we can live in such a way as if we're part of that kingdom. We can live in such a way in which we do care about God's creation. We can live lives in which we seek peace and harmony in as far as it depends on us. We can live lives in which we choose to actually stick our necks out to be with people who are different than us. To put ourselves in awkward situation for the sakes of crossing over those boundaries and those dividing lines, especially in the church. Man, if we received Jesus' invitation... And if we said yes to being a part of his kingdom, to, to living into that reality right now, wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't it be awesome? Uh, Melissa and I used to lead mission trips down to Peru. We'd take uh, college students from the great state of Wisconsin uh, down to, to Peru, and we'd work in an orphanage there. And uh, I remember one year we, we, we brought a group down, and we were there for a week, and it was, like, really hot, okay, really hot. I don't know if you can see my skin pigment, but I... Uh, I don't do well in hot. And, uh, and so and Peru's like right next to the equator. And, and so we're there, and this orphanage has a, a pool there that um, a, a group had made a few years back, but the pool was empty, and it wasn't working. Something was broken in it, but it just stared at us, you know, like all week. You know, sweating. And there it is, and it had this, this hose, and, and it was like it was a PVC pipe, and it would just like stick out. And um, I just would stare at that hose every day and be like, God, let the waters burst forth and cool my burning body. You know, it's like, oh, why won't this happen? And so it was, something was broken with it. But for whatever reason, the last day of the trip, it happened. And the water just burst forth from this, this PVC pipe. And we were just like, yes. And it didn't take long for, for all, like, five or six little kids. As soon as they saw the water coming out, there's maybe, like, two inches of water in the pool. They're like, we're in. And they jumped in the pool, and, and, uh, and then I went and, and checked on them. I was watching them, and this little girl was about five, Naomi. Uh, she said to me, she said, hey, uh, uh, hermano Gabriel, uh, brother Gabe, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, you're welcome. Um, and <laughs> that's about as far as mine goes. Uh, and she said, hey, do you want to, uh, she, she said, do you want to play horses with me? And she said, you can be the caballo, the horse, and I'll be the, the caballito, the little horse. Uh, and so after I, you know, cleaned up the puddle that my heart had melted into, uh, I I jumped in the pool and, and was playing with her. And uh, then as the pool started to fill up more, more and more kids and more and more students started jumping in this pool. You can see a little bit of a picture there. And it was this, like, incredible moment where there's just, like, all these, like, chunky, pale college kids from Wisconsin, you know, like, hanging out with these little orphans from Peru. And it was just this, like, beautiful moment of laughing and splashing in the water and this gorgeous thing. And, and I just, in my mind, I have these memories. Marrying my wife, my son being born, and then this. And here's why. I, if, if someone were to come up to me and be like, Gabe, God told me something today, 
I'm usually pretty suspicious of that, just so you know. So I mean, if God told you something, you can tell me about it, but just now I'll be questioning you the whole time. Um, and I'm a little suspicious of that, but I swear in this moment, it was as if God, like, whispered in my ear. I said, like, Gabe, do you get it? Like, do you get it, man? Do you get that this is, like, what I'm working towards? This little moment in this pool is just a glimpse of the future hope you have in store with Jesus. It's just a, a glimpse of what my kingdom is really all about. It's just a little picture of how incredible it's going to be when all people are united under King Jesus. So friends, let's tell you, turn from your false kings. Turn towards the true one. Trust in King Jesus. Live in his kingdom and experience the incredible life that he offers. Let's pray. King Jesus, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the life you give us. We give you thanks for what you're doing here. God, I pray that, that you would expose any false kings in our lives, any things that we're letting dictate what is true, what is real, what is meaningful that aren't from you. God, help us live in your kingdom. Pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.